Welcome to Straight Talk for Real Life, produced by Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Between the pandemic and those normal day-to-day challenges that we had even before the pandemic, many of us are struggling more than ever with stress, anxiety, and other emotional concerns. Today, we'll talk about how to release a superpower that can relieve that stress. We all know that engaging in arts can move us to feel something. But scientists today, looking at brain scans and brainwave technology, are able to see what music and art therapists have known for a long time, that the creative arts can have a powerful effect on the brain. Listen in, and we'll tell you how you can unleash a superpower that can improve your health and well-being. Hi there, I'm Bob Peacock. Welcome to Straight Talk for Real Life. You and I experience the world through our senses. We look at a beautiful sunrise or a star-filled night, and it gives us that sense of awe that makes us feel calm and relaxed. It can even happen when we see a piece of art, or when we hear a song or a line in poetry, or even when we smell certain scents that immediately take us back 20 years or more to Mom's kitchen. So as we experience life through our senses, these sensory experiences get processed by our brain. And our brain thanks us by releasing powerful, feel-good chemicals that trigger those feelings of pleasure or calmness or even joy. This is all part of a field of research called neuroaesthetics. By looking at brain imaging and brainwave technology, scientists can see that certain areas of our brain light up when we engage in the arts, whether painting or photography, writing or reading literature, engaging in music, dance, and much more. It unleashes powerful chemicals in our brains that can improve mental health issues like depression or stress, and even help people increase productivity and innovation. Today, I'm honored to have one of the pioneers and well-respected experts in this field. Susan Magziman is founder and executive director of the International Arts and Mind Lab from the Peterson Brain Science Institute at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Susan has written many children's and family books, and she's also the author of an evidence-based book titled Impact Thinking, which is about how we can use the creative arts to gain knowledge and solve problems in health, well-being, and learning. Susan, I want to start at the beginning. What is a simple way to explain neuroaesthetics? Well, it's a big word, right? And you're kind of like, what? What does that mean? <laughs> Um, Well, let me start by saying that a shortcut for that is neuro arts. um, And we often talk about the neuro arts. And really, it's very simple. It is how aesthetic experiences, you mentioned these sensory experiences and the arts measurably change the brain and body. And how by knowing this information, it can be translated into practices that advance our health and well-being and even help us think about how we flourish and thrive. And I want to say that um, neuroaesthetics has been with us um, really since the beginning of humanity. Artists and philosophers um, have gotten there first in really knowing the power of these aesthetic experiences to help us transform and help us change. So um, in many ways, science is catching up with what we've intuitively known for centuries. Let's talk about how you got into this field. You have a twin sister, Sandra, who is an accomplished artist and author today. 
But years ago, she had a serious accident when I think you were both in the fourth grade, and you experienced firsthand how art helped her healing process. Would you mind sharing that story? Sure. Um, so um, my sister had a, an accident where she had a compound fracture in her leg and, um, and almost lost her leg. Mm. And um, the healing process required her to do something called home and hospital school. And um, in that program, um, they offered art classes. And my sister had never, you know, created art before. Um, you know, we were pretty much nature kids, always outside, um, you know, riding horses and really just playing outside. But she had to be in, in the house and she started to draw and then ultimately paint. And what she was able to do was find a part of her voice and herself that she couldn't express verbally um, in any other way. Um, and, and a lot of that had to do with her fears around the accident, uh, isolation from school and, and kids, a sense of you know what the future would look like with a, a potential disability from an accident. Right. And so she was able to share that with me and, um, and I was able to know her more deeply um, in ways that even as a twin, you know, we were born in, in conversation. So we intuitively knew how to um, communicate with each other. We still do now. But the power of visual arts in her case was so strong um, that she continued to keep finding and sharing her voice through visual arts and ultimately um, became an artist and, a, and, and also um, an author of of illustrated books for children. So really was profoundly impactful for me. But as, a, as an artist making work, my interests move more towards the empowering processes of, of making art and beholding art and how that work really um, in those creative um, exercises, whether you're good at it or not. Um, and I think we get hung up in that in society and, you know, I'm not good at it, so I shouldn't do it. But it's actually the process that's so transformational and so much about healing and growth. And so my work over the last now probably 40 plus years has been looking at the power of what happens when you're doing it, not so much the artifact that you create, which has its own life of its, you know, of its own and how that that happens um, um, and how you experience that. What happens inside our brains when we paint a picture or listen to music or when we dance? Like nothing else humans experience, the these kinds of um, aesthetic experience or art experiences alter complex physiological and psychological networks that are interconnected systems. So, so think of that, about that for a moment. Um, there is nothing that we do as humans that engages so many different systems and connects them together. So um, neural pathways, psychological um, mechanisms, thinking about the immune system and the endocrine system, the circulatory system, respiratory system, and even looking at sort of higher um, brain systems that could impact things like cognition or affect or reward and pleasure circuits, um, memory, and even motor systems. Right. So different art forms 
have the ability to interconnect similar systems and individual systems depending upon what art form you're thinking about. So um, when you're thinking about something like movement and dance, we know that those types of activities or engagements, meaningful engagements, uh, engage the cerebellum. Um, because they're engaging motor, but they also engage the um, hippocampus because it, it turns out that motor learning actually has a huge impact on memory. So these systems are, you know, it's not like one system happens at a time. Mm. There is a cascade of interconnectivity and, and immediacy that happens when those sensory systems are engaged and that bring the world in. There's also a system called the default mode network. And that's a really interesting kind of universal system that we're learning more and more about. And it's basically um, the part of your brain in, that kind of connects the, the left and right hemispheres, but also the frontal cortex. And it's interested in um, that autobiographical. So what do you what do you believe in? What are what do you like and dislike? What are your uh, triggers? And so that part of the brain helps to, along with other areas look at what gives what has meaning for you. So an example is I might prefer jazz music and you might prefer classical music. Now some of that's around conditioning, culture, life experiences, even genetics. But this default mode network starts to really kind of create your personal um, preferences and how you sort of act on those. Um, and so we all we all have that kind of um, ability to be able to um, create preferential types of experiences that work best for us. So I can see over the next you know, 10 to 15 years where we start to look at precision medicine around aesthetic experience and the arts. And, and we're already seeing that in aging populations when you're looking at mild cognitive decline or even um, dementia, where personalized playlists become triggers for opening up memory or helping someone engage where they haven't been able to find words or even their, their language systems have been shut down. These personalized playlists are so powerful that they're able to open up pathways that have been um, shut down because of um, disease. And when we say art, that includes not only like traditional painting, stuff like that, but also non-traditional art as well. Is that right? Yeah, you know, art is a word that I think um, trips us up sometimes. Um, we think of art, high art, um, and, you know, maybe we think about museums or, or um, you know, paintings that are professionally, you know, accomplished art. But art is really, um, um, we organize art around 10 different uh, categories. We think about visual arts, literary arts, media arts or digital arts is another way to think about that. So film or even um, virtual worlds, uh, performing arts, sound and music, dance and movement. And then we think about this idea of architecture and the built environment. Um, then there's um, artisanal, traditional handcrafts. Uh, we also look at culinary arts. Mm -hmm. And then um, I also include nature. Nature as an aesthetic experience is the ultimate art form. And, and a lot of uh, arts take their cues from the natural world. And if you look at those sort of 10 broad categories, you can break those down into literally hundreds of subcategories of art. So, you know, in 
visual arts, there's painting and there's drawing and there's collage, just, you know, high level. In literary arts, there's poetry, there's fiction, there's short story, there's haiku. Every culture has a traditional hand work. And that cultural significance is so important um, in all of these different art forms. So what's wonderful about it is there are many ways to engage in the arts um, that as the maker or as the beholder. And, you know, there's a passive active dance that we play always with these different um, experiences. There is so much evidence about how powerful the brain can be when we use the arts to light up parts of the brain. There are many examples listed on the NeuroArts Blueprint website, which incidentally, you are also a co-director of the NeuroArts Blueprint Initiative in partnership with the Aspen Institute. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Let's talk about how the arts are helping people. You know, the body of literature, of scientific literature that's being developed um, over the last 10 years is becoming more and more robust. And it turns out that music is the most studied art. Um, and I want to say, because I think this is really important, is that we're talking about brain research, but we're also talking about interdisciplinary studies. So when I think about the body of research, I'm looking at public health, I'm looking at cognitive neuroscience, neurology, neuroscience, psychiatry, psychology, public health, um, uh, social work. Um, there are many fields of study that are coming together to really understand this generative nature of the arts and how do you study it? It's, a, it's not a reductionist model. It, it, it really has to be studied, entering it in lots of different perspectives. So, so brain research is one way to understand it, but there's many other ways that we want to bring together. So you really create a quilt, if you will, of the way that uh, something like music would affect different types of problems. And you mentioned impact thinking earlier in your introduction. So impact thinking is a, is a framework. It is a way to systematically study an intervention, an arts or aesthetics-based intervention based on a problem. So music, for example, um, we know that music can improve cognitive function. We know that with people with dementia, we know that it reduces anxiety that's associated with um, other kinds of chronic illness. We know that it can relieve symptoms of trauma, and it can also improve motor coordination, specifically around Parkinson's disease, where uh, it turns out that different types of rhythm and sound uh, helps with gait. So if you are having trouble sequencing your, your gait, um, different rhythms will help with that, uh, with Parkinson's, and, and we're seeing um, more studies around what's called dose and dosage. So how how often you, how long a period of time you're dancing and how many times you're dancing with Parkinson's. We're seeing the more people dance, the more relief of symptoms they have and the, and the greater improvements in cognition, which is sort of extraordinary. We're also seeing that Parkinson's patients are doing more visual art and that's helping them with, with motor learning, but also um, with reducing anxiety and increasing mood. And you think about voice and singing, it's such anybody can do it. It is the, one of the most democratizing things that we can do, right? We can hum, we can sing, even if you're not good at it. And I always like to underscore that because it's not about the 
the talent. It's about the doing. For stroke patients, singing is really important. Also for COVID, singing is really important for building lung capacity. And so we're finding with pulmonary specialists, they're beginning to um, what's called socially prescribe singing. Hmm. Um, and there's some choirs, uh, which I love, um, in England that have popped up called rubbish choirs, where people are singing together, even though they can't sing, because it's so good for social connection and for making people feel less isolated. So another thing that COVID has done is made us feel isolated. And and loneliness is, um, you know, totally on the rise, um, as is sort of this, this sense of um uh, vulnerability and uh, and singing, just even singing through Zoom um, allows people to feel more connected. Mm. And so, um, yeah, singing is a really sort of uh, extraordinary superpower um, that we can do, you know, in an instant. And I love how neuro arts has really impacted architecture and uh, interior design, urban planning, things like that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So and this is where, you know, you think about biophilic um, design. Um, you know, we know that people spend 95 to 97% of their lives indoors, yet it's the environment of light and sound and color and scent from the outside that's in the natural world that really keeps us incredibly healthy. So um, this area around bringing, bringing the outdoors in or thinking about biophilic design has really um, become quite uh, well-researched over the last five or 10 years. And we're finding certain types of light are better for attention. Certain types of light are better for sleep. We know certain colors have a physiological effect on us. Um, they also marry to cultural identity around color. So uh, an example is red is the most um, physiologically arousing color. And that would make sense because historically in, in early cultures, um, soil was often had a red tint and certainly blood ha is red. And so yeah. red was a color that we had a high um, response to, physiological response to. But it turns out that as um, cultures grew and changed, these colors have significant meaning beyond physiological feeling. So, you know, red in China is mostly uh, associated with luck and with good, good fortune. In the United States, red means stop. So color is a very interesting one. We're doing a project at Hopkins right now uh, for recharge rooms, and we're building rooms for um, frontline workers where they can come in and have an immersive experience with projections of nature. So the rooms are very calming. We're working um, with a, a company called Muto that makes these exquisite pieces of furniture that allow you to just feel like you're been enveloped in a, in a comfortable space and then projecting um, these images that f literally fill the room of woodlands and water waterfall and ocean along with sounds and um, music that lowers uh, blood pressure and variable heart rate and we think probably lowers cortisol so to give people a physiological break to recharge and these rooms are for 15 minutes so um, we're getting you know really really uh, these recharge rooms around the country have gotten huge uh, response from participants in feeling more at ease but also but also a sense of gratitude for this ability to be able to just 
let go for 15 minutes. Oh, they sound wonderful. Yeah, from my own experience, let's let's talk about stress here, because I know a lot of people are feeling stress. Years ago, I decided just on my own to take an art class. So I started with some simple drawing classes, and then I uh, later went into some watercolor classes. It was just an easy way to step away from the stress and focus my mind on something else for an hour or two. And it was almost like meditation to me. And at the time, I thought that Art was simply a distraction from the busyness in my day. But your studies and neuroarts would suggest it's actually much more than just a distraction. Is that right? Yeah, I I think that's really fair to say. Although I will say that I think distraction has gotten a bad rap um, because sometimes what you need is distraction and that is as therapeutic as engagement. You know, uh, sometimes we talk about the arts as, you know, entertainment, but we, entertainment is really about pleasure and reward and joy and joy. And I think we've commoditized these art experiences to think about them as, um, um, more commerce and, you know, entertainment is something that's a nice to have, not a have to have, or even distraction is a nice to have, not a have to have. And, but really we need those as human beings. We need them because when we're distracted, we're allowed to mind wander and mind wandering is really where creativity happens. Um, we're allowed to allow ourselves to move into these different states of well-being and different states of imagination. And so um, I think that the next wave of, of mental health, but also this idea around well-being and flourishing is going to be redefining the states of mind that we need to really feel whole. And, um, and, and that's, I think that's really exciting. Um, there are certainly, uh, I'll give you an example, there's a product um, on the market, it's a virtual reality world called Snow World. Um, it was created by some folks out at University of Washington, and it's used for pain relief. Um, so what they're finding is that the brain can only attend to you know, one thing at a time. Um, while we think we're multitaskers, we really it's really hard to do. And so when you have an, uh, a stimuli like Snow World, which is a highly immersive experience with penguins in the snow, um, there's a narrative. And at the same time, someone is changing bandages from a serious burn. You're not feeling the pain as much which means you don't need as much pain medication and you're distracted. You're distracted to something else. So I like the idea of thinking about how we play around with those concepts of, you know, what's the value of distraction in our world and, um, and how we might optimize that through certain kinds of aesthetic experiences. That makes a lot of sense. Now, you mentioned it before. There's going to be a lot of people who say, Hey, I'm not creative. I can't draw a stick figure. And yet these people are very creative from a a tech innovation standpoint, but maybe they've never taken an art class or a cooking class. Uh, From your experience, do you have to be an artist to gain the same benefits? And what would you say to that person who says, I'm not an artist, this isn't for me? So I, I, I love this question because I think it really is at the heart of why arts as a, as kind of a basic, like nutrition, exercise, sleep are not sort of, it's not really sort of 
brought up as a pillar. And I think it's because of that um, hesitancy. And, you know, often around six, seven, eight years old, this is when we start to sort of differentiate um, ourselves from others in terms of whether we're good at something or not. And a lot of times what happens is we start to self-judge and we start to feel ashamed of what we're creating if we're not getting rewarded for it, we're not getting recognized for it. And so people stop creating, making um, many things because they feel like they're quote unquote not good at it. But what, we're, what we hear is that 45 minutes of working on any art activity, and I, I will say that includes cooking, writing, um, you know, dancing in your living room, um, singing in your shower, reduces stress hormones um, by 25%. And, you know, stress hormones are really, uh, really identified as being, this is things like cortisol um, around inflammation. And inflammation is one of the most um, damaging uh, things that happen in our bodies, and so and and uh, and lay the groundwork for all kinds of diseases and disorders. So, trying to demystify and I think debunk some of the the myths around making art and the value of that, or making things and the value of that. And you know, creativity is um, not about the end product either; it's about the process. So, there's been a lot of work done in flow um, where we. You know, what flow is a prefrontal, primarily prefrontal brain um, activity where, in essence, you're shutting down the critic in your brain, the part of the, the brain that is saying it's good or bad, and just allowing something to feel timeless and, and free moving where there is no judgment. And in that space, whether you're designing software or hardware or solving engineering problems, that is a creative space, you know, and, and, and it's really around the creative at world. But if you can't shut off that critic, if that critic is always showing up, you can't really push out, push out of the boundaries of convention or, or self-reflection where you're, you're monitoring yourself and limiting yourself. So, you know, creativity uh, and innovation happens when you are not judging, but you're really doing and you're really going beyond places that you've been before. And does looking at art or listening to music or reading a book have the same impact as actually doing the painting? They can, it can, and it can have other impacts as well. And so I think this is where talent can matter. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to, but um, there's a number of um, studies that have been done um, looking at artwork and really observing. So just by looking at artwork, and that can be any artwork, you know, it can be Rembrandt or it can be a child's piece of art, you the ability to be a better observer and to understand what's happening or what you think is happening, what your perception is that's happening in a piece of artwork, um, what the artist was trying to say or what you're getting from that piece of art can be very transformational. And also in, um, 
analyzing art in group settings has been um, becoming more prevalent where you're able to perspective take by hearing what other people are seeing in a piece of art and sort of seeing that there is more than one way to see the world. And so that's very mind altering. It's very mind expanding to be able to do that um, with music. What we have found is that uh, people don't hear don't have the same emotion, emotional resonance to the same pieces of music. So um, there's, a, there's a scale called GEMS 9 that looks at rating different pieces of music against a, a nine-scale emotional response from sort of feeling sadness to feeling joy. And what we have seen in some preliminary studies is that uh, people don't hear music at the same emotional valence, even though you might think, oh, that's a joyful piece of music. Someone else might think that's a sad piece of music. And so um, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of range in what people feel when they're hearing even the same piece of music. And I think that's interesting. You know, if you're listening to music that is atonal, um, you might say, well, that doesn't sound good. There's no rhythm. There's no pattern, which, you know, humans are always looking for the pattern. Often atonal music can make you more alert because you're hypersensitive to um, not finding a pattern and trying to figure out, well, I have to kind of be more aware because I don't see that pattern happening. Mm. So, um, so I think it, it, it's very interesting how um, the beholder can have very different experiences. Um, it also helps us to understand each other um, in context to um, the world around us that we see through all these different experiences. Yeah, beauty really is in the eye of the beholder. It is absolutely the truth. And, um, you know, there are some universal um, sort of substrates, but I mentioned the default mode network earlier. Um, that, in some ways, beauty is in the default. In, in the, it is in the eye of the default mode network, right? So each of us sees something beautiful very different. And I think that's actually beautiful. I love that. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the proven benefits of engaging in the arts. What are some of the ways that the, the, the arts can help us? On a very sort of practical level, um, they allow for self-reflection and mindfulness. Um, they build self-confidence and empowerment and self-esteem. They can help us improve critical thinking skills and concentration. They can help us really understand complex, deep thoughts and deep feelings. They can improve physiological symptoms from disease. They can improve brain cognition, but also enhance mood and which and reduce stress. So from a mental health point of view, there are many substantial benefits to different types of art experiences. We talked a little bit about this earlier, but I think it's worth mentioning this idea of fostering social interactions and reducing loneliness and feeling a sense of community and connection and meaningful relationships. You know, reducing um, inflammation and, and enhancing the immune system is a hugely important benefit to um, any of these art forms. And I think that some of the other physiological aspects of that, you know, come around and thinking about some of these neurotransmitters and hormones like cortisol or looking at dopamine, enhancing dopamine and serotonin. You know, we have seen so much loss in the last year with COVID and the role of the arts to help us grieve and to heal, I think, is part of the reason why we're seeing 
more use of the arts, I would say to the folks that are, are listening to this, if you reflected on um, something that you've done over the last year, um, and it might have been as simple as, you know, dancing or making a dish that you knew your family would enjoy or singing or maybe writing in a journal, I would venture that many people have relied on some form of art or aesthetic experience to help them feel better. And it might even be sitting in a bright window, you know, or, or planting something in a garden. So, you know, it, it's it, the value, I think we're experiencing the values and the benefits of the arts, maybe more than ever in a very conscious way. Even build on that, the the arts has been such a sense of comfort to people who are lonely and stressed out. And one of the, the strongest evidence for me was on your website at uh, the, the Arts and Mind Lab about how art has helped frontline workers in hospitals, doctors, nurses, paramedics cope with this warlike trauma that they have felt in treating COVID-19. It has to be one of the most stressful jobs on the planet. Can you share some of those stories? Yeah. So um, the frontline workers in healthcare have certainly been battered. And so have the frontline workers in grocery stores and police departments and fire departments and, you know, wherever someone has to show up, right, and really be present. And so one of the things that we did early on was try to begin to to offer um, ideas and ways that they could simply access the arts. And, and what we've seen is groups that are working together come together in small singing groups um, or doing creating a book club where they're listening to part of a book on audio on their way into work and then being able to communicate with each other about how that book has made them feel about what they're experiencing. Um, some people have put lavender in their pockets and pull it out and smell a sachet of lavender to really help them feel instantly sort of settled because that scent has been something that's been really helpful to them. You know, I think that because frontline workers are exhausted, we have been trying to find things that can be really immediately available and immediately helpful in addressing some of these burnout, but stress, anxiety, fear. You know, you've seen a lot of the stories where people have stood on balconies and um, sung to healthcare workers. That's a really great example of where experiencing art and having that meaningful experience expressed in gratitude has gone such a long way for healthcare workers in particular. Yes. And so um, I think we're going to continue to see the, the need for these experiences over the next several years um, as we move into different stages of, of COVID. Susan, this has been so fascinating. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. If you feel that your own well-being has slipped a bit during the pandemic, you're not alone. We just want you to know that engaging in the arts has been a real source of comfort to many people who are stressed, afraid, or grieving. I know the pandemic has made it difficult for us to try new things, but please don't let that be an excuse that stops you. Attend a virtual workshop where you can dance or create something. Take virtual classes or watch tutorials on any kind of art that you'd find interesting. My hope is that by engaging in the arts, either actively or passively, you'll discover that it can make a difference in your life. 
HPE's For Real Life initiative continues to offer a wide range of options to help you cope with life, including support through our employee assistance program for both team members and your families. We're also focused on finding new ways to help you build strength to continue your journey so we can be the best we can be individually and collectively. HPE is committed to supporting our team member community with great resources. By listening to today's episode, you're one of the nearly 40,000 people who have listened to this podcast, and I just want to say thank you. I hope you continue to listen to past and future episodes. As always, if you're in the U.S., HPE provides many useful wellness resources on HPE Wellness. And if you're outside the U.S., you'll find them on the Global Wellness page. Until next time, thank you for taking the time to listen. It's always great to be with you. Let's talk again soon.